Robinson Crusoe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Robinson Crusoe by an anonymous author. Abridged for young readers for the McLaughlin Brothers Aunt Kate series. 1880. I was born at York in the year 1632 of a good family. My father's name was Kurtznayer, a native of Bremen, who by trading at Hull gained a very plentiful fortune. He married my mother at York, and as her maiden name was Robinson, I was called Robinson Kurtznayer, which not being easily pronounced in the English tongue, we are now called, and indeed call ourselves, and write our name Crusoe. No pains or charge was spared in my education, my father designing me for the law. Yet nothing would serve me but I must go to sea, both against the will of my father, the tears of my mother, and the entreaties of friends. I was then, I think, nineteen years old, when, one time, being at Hull, I met a schoolfellow, going with his father, who was master of a ship to London, and telling him of my roving desires, he assured me of a free passage, without imploring a blessing, or taking farewell of my parents. I took shipping on the first of September. 1651, for London. After making several voyages from thence to the coast of Guinea, I finally sailed for the Brazils. Then, northward upon the coast, till our ship made Cape Augustine, in order to gain Africa, from whence, going further into the ocean, we met with a terrible tempest. When the weather cleared up a little, we found ourselves upon the coast of Guinea. We then laid our course for the Leeward Islands, but a second storm succeeding drove us to the westward, so we were afraid of falling into the hands of cruel savages, or the paws of beasts of prey. In this distress one of our men cried out, Land! Land! which he had no sooner said than our ship struck upon a sand-bank, and the sea breaking over her, we expected all to have perished immediately. While we stood looking at one another, expecting death every moment, the mate laid hold of the boat, and with the help of the rest flung it over the ship's side, and all getting in, we committed ourselves to God's mercy. When we had been driven about a league and a half, a large wave came rolling astern of us, and overset the boat. I was overwhelmed with water, going I know not whither, but, as I thought, into a dismal gulf unknown, while all my companions were overpowered and entombed in the deep, I was at length dashed against a piece of rock in such a manner as left me senseless, but, recovering a little, 
before the return of the wave, I pushed forward and reached the mainland. Tired and almost spent, I sank down on the grass by the cliffs of the shore, free from the dangers of the foaming ocean. I cast my eyes around to behold what place I was in. I could see no house nor people. I was wet, yet had no clothes, hungry and thirsty, yet had nothing to eat or drink. The darksome night coming upon me, I got up into a thick, bushy tree, and seating myself so that I could not fall, a deep sleep overtook me. It was broad day the next morning before I awoke, and came down from the tree. The tempest had ceased, and the ship lay about a mile from the place where I was. I resolved to swim to the ship, and leaped into the water. After I reached it, I found great difficulty in getting on board. Finding the provisions in good order, I crammed my pockets, and losing no time, ate while I was doing other things. I fell to work, and flung overboard several spare yards, a spare topmast or two, and two or three large spars of wood, tying every one of them with a rope, that they might not drift away. Then I went down to the ship's side, and tied the spars fast together in the form of a raft, and crossed them with the plank, until I found it would carry a considerable burden. I then considered what I should load it with. I first lowered down all the plank and boards I could get, then three seamen's chests, which I filled with bread, rice, Dutch cheese, dried goat's flesh, and corn, some clothes, and some bottles of wine. Next the carpenter's chest, some fowling pieces, powder and shot, besides several other weapons. I then put to sea, and after many trials, landed in a cave on the bank of a little river. Not far off I espied a hill of great height, and there I resolved to go and view the country, that I might see what part of it was best to fix my abode in. I found I was on an island, a place inhabited, probably, only by wild beasts. When I went back to the raft, I brought my effects on shore, and made a kind of hut with my chests and boards, piling the empty chests and casts in a circle to fortify it against any sudden attack. I had been twelve times on board the ship, bringing away all that was possible, including ship stores, carpenters' tools, ammunition, weapons, etc., a compass and spy-glass, a large amount of gold and silver, and when I looked out the next morning, the ship was no more to be seen. I now began to think how I should secure myself from savages and wild beasts. At one time I thought of digging a cave, and at another I thought of erecting a tent, and finally I resolved to do both. I found a steep rock by the side of a hill, and there I resolved my tent should stand. I drove in two rows of stakes, enclosing a space of some ten yards, in a half-circle. 
Then with my boards and plank I built me a little castle. I had no door, but went in and out by a ladder which I made. Here was my fortress, into which I carried all my riches, ammunition, and stores. After this I added a cellar, thatched the roof, and made many other improvements, which cost me many a day's labor and pains. During all this time I yearned for some companion to whom I could talk. I had taken from the ship two cats and a dog, and these often accompanied me in my rambles. On one of these, coming upon some parrots, I knocked one down, and took it home with me. After a while I taught it to talk, and it did much to relieve the dullness of my home. At another time I carried home a kid that my dog would have killed had I not stopped him. I had been often thinking of getting a kid or two, and so raising a breed of tame goats, and I thought this a good time to make a beginning. One day I found some barley and rice springing up near my castle. I had emptied an old sack at this place, little thinking that the thoughtless act would point out to me a way of getting an ample supply of food. But so it happened, for it taught me to raise crops. But it was a long time before I learned to grind or sift my grain, and to make it into bread. During all my stay on the island, I had kept a record of time, by cutting a notch each day upon a square post, making the notches longer for Sundays than for other days, and longer for the first day of each month than for Sundays. And as each Sunday came round, I made it a day of rest, reading my Bible, and giving thanks to God that he had been so merciful to me, and made my solitary life so comfortable. A year had now passed, and every day I watched and prayed for some means of deliverance from this place, and then I began to think if it was not possible to make a canoe, such as Indians make out of the trunk of a tree. At last I selected a tree, Twenty days was I hacking and hewing this tree, fourteen in cutting off the limbs, and a month in shaping it like the bottom of a boat. When it was completed, I found it was so large that I was unable to get it to the water, and sadly gave up my undertaking. In the height of this work I found I had lived four years on the island. The next year passed very quietly, and although I was disappointed in my first canoe, I made a second one of much smaller size, but it was two years before I had finished it and got it to the water. I now resolved to make a tour of the island. I set out on the 6th of November, in the seventh year of my captivity. After a while, I brought my boat safe to a little cove, and laid down to take a welcome repose. When I awoke, I left the boat, and made a trip into the island. 
I found plenty of delicious fruits, and brought many back with me. I saw many goats with their kids, and I conceived the idea of capturing them by making pitfalls and traps, baited with barley and rice. I knew that if I wanted to furnish myself with goat's flesh, the breeding them up, like a flock of sheep, about my hut was the only method I could take. On my return from my tour, I set some traps, and one morning I found in one of them an old he-goat, and in the other one male and two female kids. It was some time before they would feed, but after throwing them some sweet corn, they began to be tamer. I enclosed a piece of ground to keep them in, and in about a year and a half's time I had a flock of twelve goats. I often gave them ears of barley, or a handful of rice, by which means they grew very tame. In two years more I had forty-three, beside what I had killed for my living. One day it happened that going to my boat I saw the print of a man's naked foot on the shore. Had I seen a demon of the most frightful shape, I could not have been more confounded. I listened and cast my eyes around, but could hear nor see anything. I returned to my castle, frightened at every bush and tree, taking everything for men, and my mind filled with the wildest ideas. That night my eyes never closed. In the morning I ventured out of my hut and milked my goats, but I was constantly thinking of means to provide me with greater security. I even thought of pulling down my enclosures, turning my cattle wild into the woods, and digging up my cornfields that the enemy might not find them, and learn that I lived upon the island. Some fifteen months afterward, in the morning, before it was light, there appeared from the seashore a flaming light about two miles from me, but upon my side of the island. I was struck with a terrible surprise, and went at once to my castle, and pulled the ladder after me. I loaded my muskets and pistols, and resolved to defend myself until my last breath. Anxious to see what was going on, I went to the top of a hill, and there saw nine naked savages eating, as I supposed, human flesh, with two canoes hauled up, waiting for the tide to carry them off again. After they had gone, I went to the spot, and saw the blood, bones, and parts of the flesh of the human bodies whom they had eaten. I was so fired with anger that I resolved to be revenged on the next who came there. The chance came about a year later, but instead of two there were five canoe loads, containing over thirty of the savages. Seeing so great a number, my heart sunk within me. I saw their horrible orgies, and I saw them drag two poor creatures from the boats. Soon 
one of them fell upon the ground, knocked down, as I supposed, with a club or wooden sword. The other poor creature looked around him with a wistful eye, but seeing himself a little at liberty, nature, as it were, inspired him with the hopes of life. He started from them, and ran swiftly along the sands toward my castle. Two of the savages pursued him, but he ran so nimbly that he gained on them every moment. As he drew near my castle, I seized my guns, and taking a short cut down the hill, threw myself between the fugitive and his pursuers, hallowing loudly and beckoning them to turn back, at the same time advancing on the two who followed him, and rushing on the foremost, I knocked him down with the stock of my gun. I was loath to fire, lest the rest should hear. The other savage, seeing his fellow fall, took his bow from his back, and was fixing his arrow to shoot me, when I was forced to fire, and kill him. After I had killed the two savages, the one pursued was induced to come to me, but he did so with fear and trembling, and kneeled down and kissed the ground, and, placing my foot upon his head, gave me to understand that he was my slave. I took him up, and made much of him in the best way I could. He was a handsome fellow, well made, with straight long limbs, and seemed about twenty-six years of age. This happened on Friday, and I gave him to understand that Friday would be his name, because it was upon that day I saved his life. Then I taught him to say, Master, which I made him sensible, was to be my name. I took him home with me, and fed him. I also gave him a suit of clothes, such as I had made for myself from the skins of goats and other animals, and, after a while, I taught him to do all the kind of work that I had heretofore had to perform, not forgetting to instruct him in the Bible, and to cease all work on the Sabbath day. Friday proved himself a very sincere, loving, and faithful servant, and in a short time could understand nearly all that I said to him, and I began to love him, and spared no pains to instruct him. I, too, learned many things from him, not the least of which was boat-building, for by his aid and judgment I was enabled to build and launch a large boat, which I styled my man-of-war, and which I designed to take me to land where Friday said there were white men living. One morning, while getting ready for this expedition, Friday came running into me, as though pursued for life, crying, Oh, dear master, oh, sorrow, oh, sorrow, bad, oh, bad. Why, what's the matter, Friday? said I. Oh, yonder, yonder, said he, be one, two, three canoes, one, two, three. Surely, thought I, there must be six, 
by my man's way of reckoning, but on stricter inquiry I found there were but three. "'Well, Friday,' said I, "'don't be terrified. I warrant we will not only defend ourselves, but kill most of these savages.' But though I comforted him in the best way I could, the poor creature trembled so, I scarce knew what to do with him. "'Oh, master,' said he, "'they come. Look. Friday, cut pieces. Friday, cut me up.' "'Why, Friday,' said I, "'they will eat me up as well as you, and my danger is as great as yours. But since it is so, we must resolve to fight for our lives. What say you? Can you fight Friday? Yes, he said faintly. Me shoot. Me kill what I can. That's no matter, said I again. Our guns will terrify those we do not kill. I am very willing to stand by you to the last drop of my blood. Now, tell me if you will do the like by me and obey my orders. Friday answered, Oh, master, me lose life for you, me die, when you bid die. We loaded two fowling pieces, four muskets, and two pistols, and divided them betwixt us, hung my sword to my side, and gave Friday a hatchet, a fine weapon for defense. And then, under this heavy load of armor, which was increased by our extra powder and shot, we marched in single file to a thick wood that stood between them and us. We found them all about their fires, eating the flesh of one of their prisoners, and that another lay bound upon the sand. I ascended a tree, and saw by my glass that a white man lay upon the beach, with his hands and feet tied, with things like rushes. Turning to Friday, I said, Now, Friday, mind what I say. Fail in nothing, but do exactly as you see me do. Are you ready? said I. Yes, master, said he. Then fire at them said I, and the same moment I fired also. We fired two or three rounds, and then rushed upon them. The savages were thrown into confusion, and so bewildered they knew not what to do. Cutting loose the white man, who proved to be a Spaniard, I gave him a sword and pistol, and he soon cut two of the savages to pieces. Before our work of slaughter was done, we had killed all but four of the savages, and these had fled to one of the canoes. I jumped into one of the canoes, and bid Friday follow me. But here I found another creature, bound hand and foot, with very little life left in him. I bid Friday speak to him, and tell him he was safe, and give him a dram from my flask. As soon as Friday heard him speak, he went into transports. He kissed, embraced, and hugged him, cried, laughed, danced, sung, and wrung his hands, 
like one distracted, and it was a great while before I could make him speak. But at last he told me he was his father. We rubbed the limbs of the two men whom we had saved, and took them to our castle, where we gave them plenty to eat and drink. A few days afterward, in talking with the Spaniard, I learned that he had been shipwrecked with sixteen of his fellow countrymen, and that they were then dragging a pitiful existence on the mainland. If I should invite them here, said I, would they make me a prisoner, or would they obey me and work with me in my little kingdom? They are honest and true men, he replied, and would scorn to act so basely to their deliverer. And then he said that, if I pleased, he and the old savage would go over and talk with them about it, and bring me an answer, that they should all swear fidelity to me, and he would do the same, and stand to me with the last drop of his blood. So finally I sent them over to the mainland, with full power to carry out this agreement. Scarce a fortnight had passed when, impatient for their return, I laid down to sleep one morning, but was awakened by Friday, who called, Master! Master, they are come! I jumped from my bed, and, seizing my glass, looked toward the sea. About half a league off I saw a boat. Climbing the mountain at the back of my castle, I plainly saw, in the distance, an English ship. As the boat drew near the shore, I perceived that three within it were prisoners, and I was concerned to know what was the object of their visit to the island. I was glad when I saw they were set at liberty, while the rascally seamen, leaving three in the boat, scattered about as though they wished to see the place. The three poor distressed creatures, too anxious to get any response, were seated under the shade of a great tree. I approached them and asked, What are you, gentlemen? They all started up. Don't be afraid, said I. Perhaps you have a friend, nearer than you expect. He must be from heaven, said one of them gravely for we are past the help of man. Tell me your condition, I replied. Perhaps I can save you. The story, said he, is too long, but, sir, I was master of that ship. My men mutinied, and, as a favor, they have put these two men, one my mate, the other a passenger, with me, on shore, without murdering us. I then made conditions that they should obey me while on the island, and if I recovered their ship, they should afford Friday and myself a free passage to England, to which they gave a cheerful assent. Then I gave each a gun, with powder and ball sufficient, and, as the mutineers returned, they fired upon them, and killed one of the captain's chief enemies, and wounded the other, who called loudly for help. Sirrah, said the captain, going up to him, 
tis too late to call for assistance, you should rather cry to God to pardon your villainy. And so he knocked him down with the stock of his gun. Three others were wounded also, and cried out for pardon. The captain granted this, if they would swear to be true to him in recovering the ship, which they solemnly promised to do. The other three were easily made prisoners. So far all worked very well, but still there were twenty-six hands on board the ship, and they were signalizing for their comrades to return. We made a small hole in the boat in which they had come on shore. This obliged them to send another boat, with ten armed men. Among them were three lads who had been forced into the mutiny. Leaving three men to look after the boat, the other seven started in quest of their companions. One of our party led them a wild chase, constantly answering their calls, and in the meantime we surprised and captured the men in the boat. On the return of the other seven, we fired at them, killing the boatswain, and wounding two others, while the rest ran about, wringing their hands but were glad enough to surrender, and submit to be bound. The captain then expostulated with them, saying the governor of the island was an Englishman, who might execute them here, but he thought they would all be sent to England. They begged piteously to be spared, and after a while the captain, in the governor's name, agreed to pardon them if they would aid him in getting back the ship, telling them they would be hanged in chains if they acted in bad faith. We set out for the ship in two parties, and completely surprised those on board. In the scuffle that ensued, the pirate chief was shot through the head, and a few others were injured. Nothing now remained but to dispose of the prisoners. Consulting with the captain, I dressed myself in one of his suits, and sending for them, told them I was going to leave the island with all my people, and promised that their lives should be spared if they would stay there. They agreed to stay. Then... I told them my story, and giving them every information necessary for their subsistence, and bidding them farewell, went on board the ship. The next morning we weighed anchor, and Friday and I bade adieu to the island, and after an absence of twenty-eight years, two months, and nineteen days, landed in my own country, hoping to end my days in peace. End of Robinson Crusoe Read by Dennis Sayers in Modesto, California for LibriVox Summer 2008